Hello and welcome to Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations and this series on the geopolitics of finance. I'm Hugo Bromley. This week I'm delighted to be joined by James Crabtree. James is Executive Director for Asia for the International Institute of Strategic Studies. He's also the author of the book The Billionaire Raj, which looked at wealth inequality in India. James and I are going to be speaking primarily about the integrated review that the UK government brought out a couple of weeks ago, and particularly the issue raised in the review of the tilt to the Indo-Pacific. We're going to talk about how that could work and how financial services in the UK economy more broadly can support and whether it is capable of supporting such a tilt. James, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thanks very much for having me. Much appreciated. So, first of all, you wrote a piece in in foreign policy about this that I was fascinated to read. And one of the things you talk about is how, as global economies change, geography is going to become less important in building trade connections. The review places a huge emphasis on science and technology in this context. But do you think financial services are important to that as well? Yeah, so the point that I was trying to make was that at the moment, from a trade perspective, the decisions that Britain has taken over the last five years look very silly. The idea of giving up your existing or making more difficult your existing connections with the European Union and then starting talking about building new trading relationships with Asia. This is a kind of poor strategy because Europe's right on your doorstep and anyone who knows anything about trade knows that distance still drives trade flows. But in the future, the point that I was making to try and be a little bit fair to the the global Britain crowd was that that will become a little bit less so over time. So growth in goods trade, global goods trade is, you know, at at best growing slowly and often not growing at all. The real growth in international trade is now coming in services and digital trade. And services and digital trade is less constrained by by distance, by having to move things in boxes and having them get stuck in the Suez Canal and that kind of thing. And, And so I think although Still, the idea that Britain is going to replace what it has lost by having less good trading relationships with its near continental neighbor, and it will replace that with membership of the CPTPP trade agreement, for instance, I think that's highly unlikely to happen. But but in the future, the vision of doing more trade uh, with distant similar economies as opposed to nearby similar economies just looks a little bit more plausible. One of the things that's linked to that is rule setting and where that will take place. And an argument that I I have a lot of time for is that because so much economic growth is taking place in the Indo-Pacific, it's organizations like the the what was once the TPP that are going to be where the rules of the new economy whether that's in digital or or, or whatever are going to be thrashed out. Do you think that makes it all the more important that the UK is involved in the Indo-Pacific as a region, just so it's involved in those conversations? Yes, yes, I do. I think that's one of the more plausible arguments for the the tilt. So the argument against the tilt, this isn't really an economic argument, it's a purely geopolitical one, is that the UK has, you know, is a medium-sized power, but not a big power. It has limited resources, and it should focus on its own backyard, you know, that it has problems in Europe, problems dealing with Russia, problems in the Mediterranean, and that, you know, with the best will in the world, you should let the Americans sort out Asia and, and you should stick to your knitting. I think one of the better arguments for the tilt is exactly the one that you make, that as the economic the world economic center of gravity moves to Asia, then many of the decisions that govern the future of global commerce will be made in the Asian region or will be made with the say-so of the big Asian powers. And so the scenario that you talk about is a perfectly plausible one. Let's imagine that the 
the CPTPP grouping, which might include the UK, but, but includes a lot of other large economies, or the, the RCEP grouping, which collectively is even bigger, they start making rules on intellectual property, which become de facto global standards. And that's the sort of thing where, you know, the UK could have a, an important national interest. And, and so I think trying to find ways of being a part of those conversations is, is eminently sensible. Just the sort of inverse of that is something that the review highlights, and it's a phrase I found curious when I read it, is the risk of economic statecraft. And the idea that we're entering a world, obviously one of the themes of the review is we're entering a world that is less unipolar, where there is strategic competition, and where what it described as everything from conventional economic policy to illicit finance is going to be part of that competition. Do you think that diagnosis is correct? And might that also underpin some of this Indo-Pacific tilt? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I think we, if you take a big step back, when, when we used to talk about the rules-based order, a large chunk in economic and finance terms, that what, what this really meant was a very unusual historical period in which states decided to separate the geopolitical security policy from economic policy to some degree to some important degree. So that's what the World Trade Organization was really about. It was about depoliticizing trade policy, making it neutral, and, to some degree neutral, and based upon rules that were previously agreed and could be arbitrated upon and appealed upon and that kind of thing. And increasingly, that kind of world is breaking down under geopolitical pressure, and we're returning to a world that is much more historically normal, in which states um, see no particular distinction between their their statecraft, their you know pursuing their end for geopolitical means, and the use of economic tools to do that. China is an absolutely classic case of this. If if it has a disagreement with Australia, then it will stop buying Australian wine or copper or whatever it is. So it uses economic tools for geopolitical ends. But then Trump Trump's America did the same, and there are all sorts of ways in which that might be seen actually to be quite regrettable for a country like the UK, but that is still the world that it is entering into. And so whether it's securing vaccines or semiconductor supplies or many other things, then the idea that the rules of the economic game are somehow going to be neutral or separate from geopolitical pressure, I think that's going to happen much less than it did in the high period of globalization from the you know the 80s until the financial crisis of 2008. I think that's interesting. I'd, I'd like to sort of come back to some of those themes a bit later, because I, I don't know whether I actually disagree with you, but I, there's something within that that I'd really like to to unpick. But first of all, the the review the the public reaction to the review was that it was not as hostile to china as people were expecting and one of its ideas is that is that britain must strengthen itself and its own key infrastructure in order that it can trade with china one of the, the one of the co-directors of our center casey lynn has talked about how london could serve as a very useful provider of financial services to china in an increasingly hostile environment do you think that has any legs and to what extent is the can the economic support for this tilt to the Indo-Pacific be linked to Chinese growth and the Chinese economy? It's interesting that you interpret it in that way. I, I actually wasn't that surprised by the the way that the the integrated review turned out with respect to China. So I can understand why people might have thought it would be hawkish because the the kind of conversation in Britain on China has become remarkably hawkish over the last two or three years, particularly if you chart it from the Cameron Osborne era 
in which you had this uh, new era of great friendship with some fairly mercantilist policies, maybe starting from the position in which the UK broke with the US and joined the the AIIB. But in a sense, I, I think what we got and what I expected was a was a fudge where not the treasury as an important kind of component in the review and the government in general still doesn't it doesn't want to be in the position that Australia is in in which it takes geopolitical positions which are so outside the mainstream on China that the Chinese take coercive sanctions um and still there are lots of important businesses in the UK that are trying to do business with China and and so financial services would be one of them Financial and professional services are one of the few sectors at the moment that the Chinese are still welcoming in, and the Americans have this problem as well that their their big banks and their insurers are actually getting more enmeshed with the Chinese economy at the moment in which it's less difficult it's less easy to imagine that being sustainable in the long run. I suppose is what I would say so yes, there clearly is an opportunity in the Chinese economy. It's going to be the world's largest economy likely soon enough. It's still the world's fastest growing major economy. It's a very important market for any business. But the problem is that that is all dependent on the way the sort of geopolitical direction of travel is moving. And, And certainly the best that you could say is that that may stabilize at the current low level and allow some expansion. But I think given the way that the relationship has deteriorated between Western countries and China over the last few years, that that would be quite an optimistic assessment of the way things are going. I mean, it looks to me like the relationship is getting worse and is quite likely to continue to get worse over the next few years. And that, I think, puts into some doubt whether it's sustainable to try and further integrate in some sectors as you are deintegrating in others. And sort of building on that, We've seen news in the UK this week about a very strong reaction from the United States towards a digital sales tax. And one of the things that struck me as reading those stories is that the UK is quite isolated when it comes to potentially disagreeing with the United States on any economic policy, which will happen from time to time without Europe and potentially without China as an option for economic cooperation and growth. Do you worry about that a bit if you, if you were if you were still a UK official? I think what's happened over the last period is I, I think almost inevitably, given the fact that the UK has distanced itself from Europe, that it has thrown its lot in with the Americans. And you've seen that in the Biden administration that you know the UK no longer carries the weight that it once carried in Washington. For instance, if you were to go back to the the second Iraq war probably the, the, the high point of Britain's recent influence for, for good or ill um, in the, the Blair, second Bush era. But even with a, its weight somewhat diminished, the, the UK, I think, has been probably the most reliable American partner so far. The Europeans have been somewhat problematic on China and are much more likely, you know, France and Germany, for their own reasons, are much more likely to be in a, in a hedging position, as you say, so yes, I suppose this does leave the the you know the UK somewhat exposed, particularly in the not very pleasant but perfectly plausible scenario of a return of Trump or a Trump-like president in three and a half years' time. That that this would leave the UK in a difficult position. But I don't think at the moment, with a a, a kind of moderate Democrat in the White House, that that is a 
an issue that will be too much of a worry. I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned Trump because I'd like to circle back to some of your earlier comments on the return of economic and financial policy as a, as a tool of statecraft. One of the things you've written on is that the Democratic the Democrat Party's response to Trumpism has been to try and integrate foreign policy and economic policy more in people like Jake Sullivan and and, and protecting the American middle class. I think you can make an argument that some of the the free trade rules-based system of the 90s and early 2000s was a geopolitical decision, perhaps against America's own domestic economic interests, which which is a slightly separate question. But certainly Biden is returning to a policy that, as you described, is not quite compatible with reaching back out to the region if they're talking about more equitable trade policies for the United States. Could you talk a little bit more about that and that particular tension that you describe? Yeah, I think it's interesting that the Biden administration, its central economic policy also it claims is to have a worker-focused trade policy or a a foreign policy for the American middle class, which are conceptually slightly different things, but but they're they're bundled together. And the basic intuition here is that the high period of globalization net net was a win for America, but it came with real costs. And those costs were borne by people who you would imagine the, the workers of declining manufacturing industries, which got sent to China or particular cities in the Rust Belt, the white working class, and that America has decided that although it might have come out ahead overall, that those costs are no longer worth bearing, particularly in political terms. And therefore, any foreign policy or economic policy is going to have to jump through hoops of you know being more beneficial to particular domestic constituencies. Now, you might argue that this is a bit of a false distinction or a a slogan, but I think what it basically means is it's going to be more difficult for the US to act as the kind of trade hegemon in the way that it did before. So before America decided not to get into the the CPTPP, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as it was originally called, this big Asia-focused trade area that took in everyone from Japan to Australia to Chile to, to Singapore, The U.S. was, if not the original architect of that, then it was certainly the biggest player that was pushing it. Um, And it did that in part for economic reasons, but also partly for security reasons. So a big part of the justification for the, the original TPP was that it would cement America's place as the economic linchpin of the Pacific region in a way that China just couldn't manage. And all of the Asian economies, for instance, where I am in Southeast Asia, where everybody cares about trade very much because they have highly trade-dependent economies. So the U.S. has, let's say, 25% trade-to-GDP ratio. Singapore has 200%. Malaysia has 100%. So they're much more trade-dependent economies. And so when the U.S. was seen as the architect of regional trade, the people who could pull together these trade-enhancing deals, that gave America enormous credibility in the region. The problem is it, it lost that credibility when it decided not to go into the TPP and it can't get back into that game because playing that game will entail some losses for some communities in the United States or could politically be perceived to involve losses. And so the basic quick version of that is it's very, very difficult to imagine Biden being able to create the political coalition to get back into the TPP. And if they don't do that, 
then that has huge geopolitical implications because it just leaves the playing field open for China in geoeconomic terms. China is the the major economy in the other agreement, uh, the RCEP agreement. It has made noises about wanting to join the, the CPTPP, which probably won't happen quickly, but you can never tell. And so America is ceding its traditional position of economic leadership in the Indo-Pacific because it can't make the domestic politics work. It's interesting to talk about this because obviously the UK has now applied to join the CPTPP and is very keen publicly to promote a free trade agenda. But aspects of government policy are not, to me, entirely dissimilar to those you've described emerging from Biden in terms of a levelling up agenda. And it's interesting that so many of the sectors that are heralded as crucial to the success of this tilt don't necessarily chime with a focus on left-behind post-industrial communities in the UK. And we're talking about financial services. Interestingly, in the integrated review, they talk about how a majority of financial services jobs are outside London. They don't talk about the income distribution there, but they sort of try and emphasize that. Do you think this this same tension might occur in UK discourse as well at some point? I, I could see that happening, yes. Um, I mean, the US has a particularly pronounced version of the, the, the kind of cost of globalization because it has a more limited welfare state and it has less active industrial policies and, and less active labor market policies. So the, the costs of globalization are felt more severely. But yes, the, that tension is clearly true in the UK. The government in the UK under Boris Johnson has taken a more uh, sort of active ideological free trading line. Boris Johnson likes to portray himself as this sort of buccaneering free trader. And I think probably in his heart rather likes the the Singapore on Thames vision of a, of a sort of pluckish, uh, competitive, low tax, uh, low regulation Britain, regardless of all of the problems that come with that. So I think that I think that's a plausible thing that could happen in the UK. The political economy of all of this is obviously very complicated because the industries that are going to lose out most from the British decision to leave the European Union, even on a positive a trajectory for the UK, that's bad for manufacturing. And the high quality, high skill manufacturing jobs where you were sending cars in, in value chains back and forth within Europe, those are the ones that are going to be hurt. And you're trying to make that up with high tech services jobs that might be able to trade with Singapore and Malaysia. In, in kind of pure political economy terms, e- even the positive outcome for a more Asia-focused policy is unlikely to be that good at healing the wounds that cause Brexit. Who wins and who loses from this change in economic direction? If you're talking about a more high-end, more services-based economy with, you know, whizzy artificial intelligence and big data and analytics, then, then that is a kind of world that is going to exacerbate internal inequalities in the UK, not heal them. I think it's I think I think this is fascinating and I think this is going to become one of the more interesting tensions in the UK in the coming years because there there does seem to be a conflict between what one might call a Singapore on Thames vision of Brexit and the vision of Brexit that won the referendum and I'm I'm fascinated to see how that plays out particularly um this brings me on to the my final sort of broad area I'd love to talk to you about, particularly given Boris Johnson's determination to forge a closer relationship with India 
and we've seen very public declarations that both geopolitically in terms of countering China and economically, they see this as a key growth region. You obviously were the bureau chief of the Financial Times there for a number of years. You've written a, a brilliant book on the Indian financial and economic elite. Do you think the, I've got some more specific questions I'd love to get into in a sec, but overall, do you think that there is space for a closer economic relationship with India? Yeah, I do. I don't think the the idea of putting India at the heart of the tilt is a bad idea at all. I mean, it's a reasonable long-term bet in the sense that India's economy is going to grow for the remainder of this century. And, and India, even if its economy is not doing terribly well at the moment, is, you know, even if it, even if it continues to underperform, it's still going to become a lot bigger. And um, the UK does have historic relationships with India, albeit um, darkened by the, the legacy of colonialism, but it, it, it's a it's a it's a reasonable long term bet. And actually, what what's interesting about it is, I think India has actually become a little bit keener on this in the last couple of years than you might have thought. When I lived in India, there was just before I lived there in the two thousands, there was a big flourishing of ties between uh, India and the UK in economic terms because that was the period when you know the Tata Group was buying Jaguar Land Rover and. And Indian conglomerates went on a big spending spree in the West. And obviously, the Indian financial and political elite have strong ties with the UK. That's where they send, often send their kids to university. It's where they come in the summer. So there's a kind of comfort on both sides. But the thing that's changed, often India like to kind of look at the UK and think, well, we don't really need them anymore. You know, we've outgrown that relationship. But actually, now there's something different going on, which, as you said in your question, is deeply rooted in the the conundrum for India of how to deal with China. India recognizes that it it is not yet in a military or economic position in which it can kind of balance China on its own, and therefore it needs friends. So substantially, it needs the United States. But actually, having some European powers more invested in the region is a is a reasonably good thing from India's point of view. That that's quite positive. Now the UK, um, you know, they're probably agnostic as to whether or not it's the UK, France, or Germany, but but I I think the sort of shrewder geopolitical analysts in Delhi are quite comfortable or becoming more comfortable with the idea not of European countries coming and meddling in Indian affairs, which people don't like at all, but the notion of European countries coming back and having, you know, a kind of minor role in the broader Indo-Pacific region as part of a coalition that is going to try and balance China. And and so, yes, I, I, I think it's going to be a problematic relationship because of the direction of travel of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government, which, you know, many people are very passionate supporters of his, but according to the best available evidence we have, is becoming quite a lot less democratic than it was, more majoritarian, more religious nationalist, ethno-nationalist in tone. Uh, So whether you look at the Freedom House rankings or the Economist Intelligence rankings or the Swedish VDEM studies, they all show India's democratic kind of ranking sliding. uh, And that creates a, a tension for a country like the UK, which is trying to be supportive of a Biden democracy versus authoritarian agenda as a way of revitalizing the West in the face of a Chinese-Russian autocratic front. And India sits a little bit more awkwardly in between that than I think many of us would have hoped. And so I, I don't think the Indian relationship is going to be an easy one. And the economic dividend from it at the moment is not that big. But 
you know, in a sense, you take things as they are. And therefore, I, I think the notion of trying to build a closer ties, ties with India economically and politically with the UK is, is a sensible one. I, there's a couple of big questions I'd like to ask you, but very quickly beforehand, we've had a lot of talk of enhanced trade partnerships. That's probably what Boris Johnson is going to agree when he goes to India, but uh, working towards a trade deal, but not much talk of the trade deal itself. I have an idea of this, but what do you think the biggest stumbling block to a trade deal there is? Oh, I mean, there are so many huge stumbling blocks. You don't really know where to begin. I mean, no, 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 no one has been able to sign a trade deal with India. It's an almost impossible task. So the reason why they're going for this enhanced trading relationship is just because the notion of actually signing a trade deal is complete pie in the sky. You know, the European Union tried for the best part of a you know decade or more. Um, and for them, I forget, I mean, there were also lots of stumbling blocks. Cars was a big stumbling block, all sorts of stumbling blocks. So it's very, very difficult to imagine signing a trade deal with India. India is very wary of trade liberalization. They were not able, despite quite a lot of elite buy-in, uh, to sign up to the RCEP trade agreement, which would have been very useful to India in geostrategic terms, because then it would have been a trade agreement in which you had both that you had ASEAN, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and China, and India. And so the Southeast Asian countries were, were very, very keen to have India in because then it would have been much more balanced between the Asian powers. But India and its leadership just couldn't make the, the kind of political economy of it work. Um, it would have imposed some losses on important domestic constituencies, particularly farmers, and the ruling party were not able to find a way of making that work, and so they couldn't do it. And so, yeah, the, the notion that that there's going to be a UK, grand UK-India trade deal in the way that they've very quickly been able to strike one with Singapore and Japan, I think this is highly, highly unlikely. And so what they're doing now is doing you know, the next best available thing. We've, we've got little time left, and this has been brilliant, and I've got slightly sidetracked because I was fascinated in a couple of points. But one thing that I'm fascinated by more broadly is whether financial services sectors in general can be brought to serve states' geopolitical objectives. Obviously, there was a period when Britain was, I think, I think Britain still is, if not in a coalition against China, certainly concerned by it. And that was a period that saw HSBC and Standard Chartered consider and sort of shift around on Hong Kong. Do you think it's possible more broadly to bring the city in line with the geopolitical objectives of the UK beyond simply growth and tax revenue? Well, I mean, financial services can certainly be used as a as a part of economic statecraft and you know just look at china and the way that it uses its big banks to funnel money into belt and road initiative projects but it's much more difficult to to see financial services in those rather crude terms in the uk where you don't have state-directed banks and much state-directed finance when you have overseas development assistance so i think there are going to be limits on what um, certain kinds of uh, limits on capitalism that are going to be imposed for security reasons. So eventually, I think, let's take the Americans, for instance, at the moment, their banks are busily trying to get bigger into China. I suspect over time, that's going to prove to be rather difficult for all sorts of reasons, uh, you know, trying to do 
business for state-linked Chinese companies, for instance, I think will become politically unacceptable. The same will be true for the UK. Uh, whether or not the UK is going to be able to stop the likes of HSBC or the PRU or Standard Chartered seeking to re-domicile towards where their predominantly Asian businesses are, I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of complicated. And these these businesses are, you know, they're not totally footloose, but eventually over time, if their Asian businesses become much larger than their, their legacy European and North American businesses, then they'll, they'll vote with their feet. So I, I think that to get back to your question, there are, there are ways in which the, the city is an advantage and being able to provide capital creates some geopolitical leverage. But the question is then, how does the UK seek to deploy that? You could imagine, thinking entirely theoretically, that the Quad, for instance, decides that after having done something on vaccines, it might try to do something on sustainable, high-quality infrastructure or green finance. And therefore, if you are a member that might plausibly want to join a Quad Plus coalition like the United Kingdom, that somehow you, you could not rope in the city, but the UK would have assets or capabilities in terms of financing markets or ability to provide funding for projects that, you know, would have some kind of commercial return or state-backed commercial return, but would also serve geopolitical network and alliance building objectives, I suppose. So yes, I, I think there are ways in which you could think about that, but it's rarely going to be as easy as it is for the, the geoeconomic strategies of the Chinese and the Russians, where they can simply direct pots of state money towards geopolitical ends. James, thank you so much. This has been brilliant and a really useful contribution to a debate. I think we need to be having more. My final question is a very short-termist one. If this tilt is working, what do you expect to see in the next few years that would show, if not that it was going to succeed, that the government's idea of it is on the right track? I think you'd know it was working if the UK's presence in Asia was more visible, more substantive and viewed as being more legitimate. So it, it kind of won permission to be a player in the region by doing things that were useful. And so a lot of that is going to be engaging with and joining ad hoc coalitions of nations who are trying to solve particular problems. Some of these are the things that we mentioned earlier in our discussion about rule setting. So let's imagine that a coalition of nations came together to try and set some new rules for the government, for the use of artificial intelligence and in financial services. To what extent should you be able to use trading strategies using AI? Does that create systemic financial risk? What about the regulation of blockchain or, or you know, that, that, that kind of thing? And let's imagine that instead of that happening through BIS or some other traditional channel, that it would happen through some coalition of nations who just happen to think that it was a good idea, as has happened this week with the idea of a pandemic treaty, or as has happened with some of the bits of work that are going on piecemeal on supply chain resilience. So I think you, you, you would look to see, is the UK involved in more of these initiatives? Are they successful? Perhaps as the UK led some of them? And is its contribution being seen 
to be you know welcome around the region so it's unlikely to be terribly welcomed by china but let's say elsewhere around the region amongst its more traditional friends and for instance countries in southeast asia that have been more neutral or in south asia can the uk also kind of focus its effort that the danger i think is that you know the, the uk has a very limited amount of money i mean as a it's still a medium sized power it has you know, one of the world's top 10 military forces and one of the world's top 10 economies. But that doesn't mean it can do everything. It, it isn't even the United States is now stretched thin in Asia, and it has vastly greater resources than a country like the UK. So I think another marker of success is, is the UK going to be able to focus on doing a small number of things and doing them very well, developing partnerships with particular countries, as opposed to trying to do it piecemeal with every country. So yes, I think those are the kind of things that you're going to look for, that, that using your resources in a way that is focused on particular areas where you have good capabilities and, and kind of heritage and strengths and building up and being part of new these new ad hoc coalitions that will be useful and being seen to be legitimate because of that. Brilliant. James, thank you so much. That's been really really great and it's a really great conversation to have so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i'm very happy to have done it thanks so much i i hope to be able to escape singapore soon and to come and visit cambridge which i haven't been for a good long while so i look forward to that thank you for listening to this podcast from cambridge geopolitics conversations you can find the center for geopolitics on twitter at camgeopolitics all of our events are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.